Welcome to episode 210 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Kayla Lyon. She served in the Navy and we talked about not only her time in the Navy but her journey to the Navy through junior ROTC and then through the Academy. She wanted to be a pilot but she was disqualified due to her back and she ended up becoming a surface warfare officer and we talked about her time on the ships that she was on and why she left the military. And we also talked about the work she's doing today as a life coach and leadership coach to help make the military a better place. I'm really excited to share this interview with you, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, Kayla. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, where the Naval Academy is, and I'm not from a military family, but that was that's like my hometown football team and like the academies in my backyard. So I was always super familiar with it. And so it was always kind of in my purview, if you will. And then late, pretty fairly late in high school, like middle of my junior year, I decided that that would be a great idea to go to the Naval Academy. One of my friends was in a JROTC, like a junior ROTC unit, not in my high school. She had a commute to another high school for it. And that was always fun. And in at my school, if you were a junior, you didn't get a parking spot because they didn't have enough. But if you had to commute to the other school, like she got a parking spot because she had to drive herself to the other school. So I'd be lying if I didn't say that that was not intriguing in the moment as like a 16 year old. So I started going down that road. And then I was like, oh, this is this is good. Like I can be a part of something bigger than myself. And like the more I learned about it, the more it turned into all of like the kind of cheesy, like warm, fuzzy reasons for wanting to serve my country. And obviously the Naval Academy offers a great education. And I was a swimmer and I swam there my freshman year. So it was kind of a almost like a last minute decision, I think, like compared to my husband who decided he wanted to go there when he was like seven. And my mom did not believe me for a while. She thought I was kidding because I don't like to do what other people tell me to do normally. So she was like, are you sure this is a good idea? And then she was like, oh yeah, no, you're serious. Okay. And so I applied and I got in and within a couple of days of like the plebe summer, like boot camp, I was like, well, I'm in this for the long haul now because I don't want this to be for nothing. So that, that's kind of the beginning. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit and talk about what it was like to apply. Like, did you have to get a nomination? Were there any challenges that you faced in like applying to the academy and what that was like? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I had to get a nomination and being from Maryland and from Annapolis, there's it was it was challenging just because, you know, it's like each center and congressman only gets a certain amount and it's the same no matter where you're from in the country. But there's a lot of people know about Annapolis from Maryland. The nomination spots are pretty competitive just because they have like a lot of applicants. And then so I got through that whole process. I got through the nomination process. Um, I also applied to Kings Point, which is the Merchant Marine Academy as well. And then and a couple other civilian schools as well. And then once I decided that that was my path and I was going to go into the Navy, I did. That was that was it. I'm, I was just going to figure out how. The Naval Academy was my number one choice. But so I, like I said, I applied to Kings Point too. I applied for the NROTC scholarship as well. And then the civilian schools I applied to were specifically because like they had, you know, NROTC units and programs and, and things of that nature. So once I made up my mind, I just kind of like went dove all the way in and there was no going back. And then I was actually medically disqualified because I have scoliosis and I have issues with my shoulders because I was a competitive swimmer for my whole life. And so my shoulders are 
kind of a mess now. I have the uh, very similar to like pitcher's arm, like which like, you know, MLB pitchers just from like all the rotation. I decided that that wasn't an acceptable answer. So I did what I had to do to get like waivers and, you know, petition my doctors to figure out, you know, what can I do and what are my options and et cetera, et cetera. So I finally figured that out and I got the medical waivers that I need. So then I was able to actually go to the academy. And looking back now, it's kind of silly because I just, I was told no so many times. And then that was actually true throughout my entire career. It's like, I never, I never got where I wanted to go like the first time. And I always had to be like, Hey, no, like this is going to happen. We have to just figure out how it was an interesting ride, but it was good. Yeah. I think that really shows how important self-advocating is because that's something that I'm learning today. And I definitely didn't have when I was in high school and college. And even when I was in the military, I was kind of like, okay, the military will tell me and then I'll just do what I want. And I didn't self-advocate as much as I should have. And it's really an important thing that you need to know Especially like when you're joining the military, like you have the control (laughs) until you sign the paperwork. So like if you want to do a certain job and they tell you no, no, that's not going to work for me. Let me figure out. There's got to be a way to make it happen. That's really good. And it shows your personality like all the way back from high school. And I love your commitment. You're like, I'm either going to do the Academy or the Merchant Marine, or then I'm going to do ROTC. I'm I'm going into the Navy. Yeah, it was looking back now. It just it's kind of interesting thinking through that again, because I'm not I'm not really sure how that happened or like why I made, you know, it wasn't like this like huge, like defining moment. Like I just was like, oh, like I'll just start like hanging out with these people. And if I do this, like I'll get a parking spot my junior year in high school. That wasn't like the only reason, but it was definitely like icing on top of the cake. Right. Yeah. I just was like, oh, no, this is a great idea. And then I never looked back. I like went full bore. Yeah. And like I said, when the academy was like, oh, no, you can't like you're medically disqualified and all this other stuff. And I had other options. But, you know, Navy medicines, Navy medicine. So whether I was going to be disqualified from there or NRTC, it would have carried over in one form or another. And I was, I just decided that wasn't an acceptable answer, which as a 17 year old, like, I don't, I don't know where I got that from because, you know, it's like you're, it's kind of like the phase of life where you're just doing what you're told. That was just not a good answer for me, which was kind of arrogant of me, I guess a little bit, but to your point, like there's a real need to be able to like advocate for yourself and like what's important for you. And I'm learning that now, like with my kids, I've got young kids and I've had to kind of like step in and decide when to push, push a button with like, you know, the school or the doctor or something with my kids too. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, like this is just part of being a human and being a parent and taking control of like our own destiny, if you will. Yeah. That's a really good life skill that the military can teach you. And especially because you're so young when you like head off to either to college or to your training, basic training, and then you're on your own. And so it's something we learn really quick and something that we still learn in the future in new ways. Let's talk a little bit about your time at the Academy. You said that you were like, I did plebe summer and I was like, and I'm and I'm not going to let that go to waste. So what was the rest of your time like and what what were some lessons you learned? Oh, so many. Yeah. Within like the first week, I was like, well, I'm here because exactly. I was like, my sun cost is too high. I'm definitely not turning back now. And not that I was ever considering leaving anyway, but I was just like, this is like a very definitive, like I remember having like that very definitive decision. But yeah, so my freshman year, I was on the swim team. And I swam competitively through like the very beginning of my youngster year, my sophomore year. But my shoulders just at that point had were had just taken such a beating, and I was not going to the Olympics. Like that was I wasn't that good, and it got to the point where like my commissioning was going to start to be called into question. So I was like, okay, like at this point, I like to say that I retired instead of quit. <laughs> so I stopped swimming, 
And then I actually, my last two years, my junior and senior year, I joined the offshore sailing team, which that's one of the best choices I ever made. Like we had a ball and I learned how to like sail a sailboat in the middle of the ocean and I made some of my best friends there. So that was very fun, very hard and grueling and challenging, but really awesome in a lot of ways. And I was a systems engineering major, which I did because I enjoyed it, not because I was super duper smart. (laughs) So I worked very hard to pass my classes and maintain a decent grade point average. But that taught me a lot about how to like manage your time and when to not do everything, right? Because it's like there wasn't enough hours in the day to be able to do all of the things between like varsity athletics and my course load and just everything else that we have to do, you know, outside of like the normal college kind of experience, you can't do it all. And so it forced me to figure out how like, okay, what do I have to do? What do I not have to do? What can I let go? What can I kind of like cliff notes, you know? So that was very helpful because then I got to the fleet and I had to do all of that there too, you know? So it's just good life lessons across the board. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And you're not the first person I've talked to who went to a military academy and talked about time management and all the responsibilities. That's a very common thing. So after you graduated from the academy, then what was your job and where did you go? Example number two of not getting what I wanted was I actually service selected um, naval aviation, which is what I wanted. I went in wanting to fly. I wanted to be a jet pilot. And then the flight doc when I went through all of like the pre-commissioning physicals and all of the medical stuff as a junior to determine like what I'm medically qualified to go do in the fleet, I needed a waiver at that point. So when my main issue when I was applying to the academy was my shoulders and then that kind of got all got cleared up. And then when I stopped swimming, that helped considerably. And then for pre-coms for all the pre-commissioning medical stuff, it was my back uh, specifically for aviation because like my, I'm fine, but in a like ejection sheet kind of situation, they're worried that like my back doesn't have the structural integrity to be able to handle something like that and blah, 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 blah. And as a 20 year old who wanted to be a jet pilot, I was not interested in hearing that (laughs) as I'm sure you can imagine, you know, forgetting that I was going to be 40 and 50 and 60 ideally one day. But the flight doc decided, he was like, I think we're going to submit a waiver. I think this is going to be fine. I think you're going to get the waiver. It's going to be not a problem. So he allowed me to put in that as my selection. And then I was selected to be that because you like put in your preferences and then there's like boards and stuff and they tell you what you get. And so I was, I got naval aviation or yeah, naval aviation. And I was very excited about it. And then months later, pretty close to the end of senior year, I was told that my waiver was denied and I was not going to be an aviator in any form. So that was a bummer. And at that point, all of the billets had already been parsed out, right? Everything had been full. So the only community with a handful of extra billets was the service worker community. So that was, I never even considered being a ship driver. Like that was just not something that I felt drawn to. I considered being a Marine for a while and kind of was going back and forth between aviation and like Marine Corps aviation or naval aviation, et cetera. But I'd never considered being a SWO. So then all of a sudden I'm like, well, SWO chose me. I don't really have an option here. So it took me a while to kind of deal with that. And then I thought I had made my peace with it. And then a couple of years later, I found out that I hadn't. And But I would never actually tell Navy Medicine this, but they were right. And in the last 10 years, I'm glad that I was not a pilot because it would have messed up my back more than it already is. I'm very certain of that now. I'm married to a helicopter pilot and just seeing kind of what he deals with, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, no, that was definitely a good thing that I didn't get to fly. But you know, I can't tell them that, of course. Yeah, so you were on the path to be an aviator. You got like selected and all you were doing was waiting for a waiver and then everything changed. And like you said, all the jobs had been given out. So it was kind of like 
here's what's left over. Yeah, which, and I hate talking about the service community that way because that's definitely like the reputation that it has in the Navy, especially out of the Academy and in other commissioning sources. But it's great. It's the backbone of the Navy. It's how everybody gets around. It's, I actually, I had a very love-hate relationship with the community because it's a lot of like, swos always eat their young and it's just like the culture isn't great. But there's a lot of really great stuff about it. And I, I genuinely loved going to sea and I miss it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, so I commissioned. I did my first tour on a cruiser out of Mayport, Florida, right near Jacksonville. And that was a great time. And I deployed then in 2011, I think that was. And then I got orders. I was because I wanted to go to Hawaii. Once I found out I was going on a ship, I wanted to go to Hawaii because it's Hawaii. And I I got Florida. So that was fine. I, you know, not not my number one, but I was happy with it. And then I got orders for my second tour to go to Hawaii. And then after my movers had come, and I was still single at this point, like I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So like that was helpful. But I, after my movers had come, so I have like a suitcase and nothing, my orders got canceled. And I got new orders to a ship that was being built in Bath, Maine, in the shipyard in Maine, and was going to Hawaii. But this was like February, and we didn't actually get out to Hawaii until Thanksgiving. So I like to call that year, uh, that was 2012. That's my year of homeless nomadery, where I had like a suitcase that I had packed for literally like less than a month. And I had to kind of make do for most of the year and like two very different climates. So that was interesting, for sure. And the whole time, I was very grateful that I did not have like kids and a husband and and all of that. Yeah, so I went and spent a couple months up at the shipyard and I commissioned a DDG, Michael Murphy, which was a very cool experience. And it was interesting going from like a much older ship to a brand new ship. And we sailed her all the way around from Maine out to Hawaii. We did a homeport ship to Pearl Harbor, which was very awesome. I spent three years out there and that's where I met my now husband. And we were there. I did, yeah, I did my ship tour and then I did my um, shore tour. So I wound up working, did a tour with the Air Force out there at the Air Operations Center there, which was very cool. And then at that point, that's when I left active duty leaving the island because we were married and he's a Marine and we were supposed to be there together for a couple more years. And the Marine Corps decided to send him to Quantico, Virginia, which is not close. So let's talk a little bit about your time on the ships because you went through them pretty quickly. And I interviewed someone who helped to commission a new ship. And so she talked about how they had to like bring all the equipment on and then they had to like check it all and how and then like the first time after they had put like their blood, sweat and tears into getting the ship ready to take it out to sea and what that experience was like. So, I mean, we could talk about your first deployment on an older ship, but I really... I don't know. I'm fascinated with that because I heard her story and I'm like, oh, I want to hear another one. Yeah. So I joined Michael Murphy way late in the commissioning process. So I checked on board in June and we commissioned her in October and then in New York City and then sailed around to Hawaii. Like I said, we got there Thanksgiving weekend. So I don't have the full blown pre-commissioning experience. But I did get to when we were in Maine and it was the summertime and it was just gorgeous and phenomenal. And I was pretty happy that I skipped the main winter, if I'm being honest. But that whole experience, just going through the, I was gonna say the pomp and circumstance of it, but like the, like that part is for sure cool because there's a lot, the Navy is like very steeped in history and there's lots of like ceremonial stuff and everything means something. And so like that part was very cool and it's pretty unique, right? It's not like 
there are plenty of sailors who are if you're if you commission or decommission a ship, you're called a plank owner. And there are plenty of plank owners running around, but there's plenty of sailors who are, are not plank owners, like and you never have that experience. So that was really unique and very cool. And it was the USS Michael Murphy, which he was a SEAL, and Marcus Luttrell's book, Lone Survivor. That's the story of it, right? So that's Michael Murphy's story. And I have several friends who are SEALs and I've got a couple family members who are SEALs. So like that was kind of near and dear to my heart anyway. And so that kind of just like personal connection just made it that more meaningful for me. So that was really neat. And yeah, so I missed the beginning of the like bringing everything on board and doing all the testing and that kind of stuff, like the initial sea trials. But after we got out to Hawaii, we had to go through and I was the training officer. So I was in charge of like scheduling everything for all of our certifications for all the different warfare areas for pretty much everything that you have to do to make sure that a ship is ready to like deploy and go fight a war. You know, you have to do certifications and inspections and all that through the workup cycle for deployment. And so we had never done any of that before. So that's where, um, and that was like very specific to my job on board the ship too. So I had a heavy hand in like managing all of that and kind of getting all the pieces together. But we did like sea trials and we did, you know, SM2 missile shoots and stuff because we had to test everything. So that part was very neat and very fun. And like doing it against the backdrop of Hawaii didn't suck either. And we lived in a nice place. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't so bad. What was you? You mentioned like you were on an old ship and then you were a new ship. So like, what was the biggest difference between like the older ship and the new ship? Besides that, everything was new. A big thing was the computer parts of it, like the digital versus the analog. And it was really interesting because on my old ship, I mean, there were some computers ish, but we did everything by hand, like wind envelopes, right? Because it's like when you're landing a helicopter on the deck, like the, the winds have to be right. And even uh, mo boards, like maneuvering boards and charts and everything was on paper. And so we got really good at it because that was our job, right? And so we could do that stuff very quickly in our sleep. And when I got to my second ship as a second tour division officer, part of my job was to help train the first tour division officers who would this was their first ship. This is the first thing they had done. And there were some who were very interested in learning like the quote unquote old school way, like the paper way. And then there were others who were not as interested in that. And for me personally, I thought it was really important to know how to do the paper stuff because computers are still computers, whether they're on a multi-million dollar warship or it's your phone, like they break and they don't work. And so if you're at sea and something goes down, which it does even on brand new ships, you have to know what you're doing, right? And so I think it's super important to like know how to do long division before you start using the calculator. So that is also a really good way to stay awake at two in the morning when you're on the bridge and you're like in the middle of nowhere, you know, because so that's helpful. But that was that's one of the biggest differences. And then just like the the, the mechanics of it and the way things are like this with the way the systems come together and the way things are wired and how like literally like the steering on the bridge of the ship, how it like physically connects to like the mechanics of like the rudder back in, you know, all the way at the, in the bowels of the ship and that sort of thing. There was a lot of crossover, but it was very different. So I had to learn like the new systems for all of that. And there's a little bit of difference because there were two different types of ships, but they're similar enough that there was a lot of crossover. So just trying to relearn, like I said, a lot of like the digital versus the analog and that sort of thing. And then teaching the, the younger ensigns and, the the younger officers about how like this is how we you know do the paper stuff and then they taught me a lot about how to do the digital stuff because they picked it up really quickly because that's all they knew right they were learning from scratch and I had to I was like the crotchety old lady who had no idea what was going on <laughs> from the computer standpoint um because it was just like a completely new system I had never seen before so it was that was definitely one of the big differences and it was just interesting to see the different mindsets of 
the different sailors and even some of the more senior sailors, right? Because some of the newer ships, like some of the department heads had been on newer ships in the past or, or same thing like me, like had never been on a newer ship and they still had all analog. Um, so just kind of seeing the different approaches and the different mindsets throughout the crew was fun to watch. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of like when I've talked to navigators and like that's kind of becoming a lost art because you can use a computer. But then like when you don't have the computer and like lives are on the line, you need to be able to do it on paper. And and it can be really easy to rely on the computer. And then when it's not there, you're like, wait, how do I do this? Or like you've never done it before. You haven't practiced it. Like you guys had to do it over and over. So it became like, you know, riding a bike. You just do it. Um, and it doesn't matter how long it's been, it comes right back. So that's kind of interesting to talk about. And like, I wonder how the military is overcoming that because like you were kind of one of the last generations of like doing it on the older ship. And then like now, like all those older ships are being replaced with new ones. And so that like real understanding of doing it because that's the only option you have. I wonder how that's affecting the military. Or hopefully their computers just never break. <laughs> Which they do, unfortunately. Right. right? Like, just because computers are, like, technology is great until until it's not. <laughs> um, I know it's still taught. And, like, I know you. It, it, it's exactly like going through school and, like, learning how to do long division before you pick up the calculator, right? Like, I know it's still taught. Um, and I'm sure there's still at least somewhat of an emphasis put on it for exactly all these reasons we're talking about. Um, and I know at least back then, like it's been a hot minute. I left, I left sea duty for good in 2015, 14, 2014. So it's been a minute, um, since I personally was in that world. But even when we went to sea, um, on my, on the destroyer, on my new ship with all the computers and all the electronic charts and everything, we still had to have a full complement of paper charts on board. And so we, and we still had to like all the um, quartermasters and the navigator still had to do all of the prep for the charts because you, you know, it's like, you don't just like whip out the chart and start going. You have to like prep the chart and identify all kinds of landmarks and buoys and all of all the things. And so they had to do, they do a ton of pre-work. And so they had to prep everything. Like we didn't have the computer system because exactly when it goes down, you have to be able to just whip out the chart and drop a DR and go. Um, so I would assume that they're still doing that. I should actually ask some questions to some of my friends because I haven't thought about that in a while um, who are still in and see how they are handling that. But yeah, like computers crash and it's never at a good time. Like it's always at an inopportune moment. So you definitely have to have a backup system. For sure. Yeah. It's just so interesting to hear about like things that you don't think about, like how much the computers change, but then also how much everything stayed the same because you have to rely on that pen and paper that doesn't, you know, doesn't break, doesn't crash in the middle of a mission. So. You mentioned you did shore duty. Did you meet your husband when you were doing shore duty or were you still doing your sea tour? So that's a or fun story. So we originally met in college. We were at the Naval Academy at the same time together. He's a couple years senior to me. Um, but we just kind of like knew who each other was. Um, and then six and a half years later, so the weekend that I pulled into Hawaii, it was Thanksgiving weekend in 2012, I literally like ran on ran into him on the beach. Like I was walking down the beach and he was like, Kayla. And I was like, Chris, what? We hadn't seen each other in six and a half years. Like we hadn't like kept in touch or anything. Cause we weren't like friends, friends, um, at school. But from there we, like, I had literally been there for two days. Like I didn't know anybody, you know? And so they was like, Oh, Hey, like, good to see you. Like come hang out, whatever. And we just became friends. And he lived with a couple of guys, um, in his squadron. They had a 
sick house right on the beach in Kailua um, on Oahu. And so we just hung out and became friends. And from there, we just kind of like very slowly started hanging. Like he and I started hanging out a little bit more. And then that was Thanksgiving. And then by March of the following year, so a couple months later, we started like actually like officially dating. And then, yeah, ever since then, now I got three kids and, you know, it's been almost a decade since we've been together. So. Wow. That's crazy that you were like walking on the beach and he's like, oh, I, I remember you. And you guys are like, oh, yeah. And then you're like, I don't know anyone. Let's hang out. <laughs> Definitely one of the most random moments ever. And I'm very thankful for it. <laughs> and then you said that he was supposed to stay in Hawaii and you were doing shore duty. And then all of a sudden they changed his orders. And so were, was your transition kind of quick or did you have a heads up or what? Tell me that story. Yes. So we, um, we did what we did not think was common at the time, but have come to realize is quite common in the military. Um, we went and got courthouse married before we got like actually married because, um, because of orders, et cetera, et cetera. And so I stayed for, I stayed on the Island for my shore duty and he was supposed to stay, he was supposed to extend in his squadron for an extra year, I think. Um, which was going to match up the end of my tour and the end of his tour. And that was, that was coincidental. Like his squadron needed him to stay blah, blah, blah. So like that just kind of came together very nicely. Um, and so we had just moved out of like the frat house as we called it. And then we were like, cause I wound up moving in with him and his roommates while they were deployed and blah, blah. That's a whole nother story. That's not really relevant, but he and I had just moved into like our own house together and we were like at least pretending to be adults. And, um, we had been there for like two months and it was the week before we flew home for our like actual wedding. And he called me and he was like, so this was like spring and we were supposed to stay for another like almost 18 months. And he was like, Hey, so they want me in Quantico in like June. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's different. That's not what we were expecting. And at that point I had been on my shore tour. I'd been in those orders for over a year or right around a year, somewhere right in there. And we knew that I was going to, we knew eventually I was going to get out. We knew that long-term, because he was a, he's a Marine Corps helicopter pilot. I'm a ship driver, like our dual military relationships are hard enough as they are, but we were in separate services and completely separate. You know what I mean? Like even when you're in the same community, it's challenging. And so our, our longevity options there were not great. And we knew that going into it. Um, and he's senior to me and, you know, we wanted to have kids and all that. And I'm like, if I could have delegated the child rearing to him, I for sure would have, but that's not how it works. So we knew eventually that I was probably going to get out and he would probably stay until retirement. We just did not think that that decision point was going to come quite so quickly. And so I went to work that day because he called me at like six or seven in the morning. He had already left. I was literally walking out the door, but we were in Hawaii. So he had heard from the East Coast, you know, it was like halfway through the East Coast's work day or whatever. And so his detailer, his monitor is in Quantico. And so they were like, oh yeah, like you're doing this. So I went to work that day and figured out how do you, how do you resign from active duty? Like, how do you get out of the Navy? So I figured that out, which ironically, that was the easiest paperwork I had done at any point in my entire career. <laughs> I was like, well, that was simple. And so... Yeah, my last day of active service was the day before Thanksgiving that year in 2015. And then I was a reservist for another four years and change. So yeah, we met when I was on sea duty here, sea duty there, and he was on his like a built like his operational sea duty essentially. And then I rolled to my shore tour there while he was still in a squadron. And then that's where I 
got out at about six and a half, a little over six and a half years of active. And then he, we were able to push his like Quantico date until like August. So we like bought ourselves a couple months, mostly because his squadron like needed him to stay for that. And then I had to finish out my time. So it was a pretty quick turn. Like the earliest I could have, like from that moment when I realized like, okay, like this is, I need, we need to kind of like start this process. November was kind of the quickest that that all could have happened. And plus like, you know, I wanted to like button up things with my job because I wasn't, wasn't planning on leaving that soon and wrap up some projects and stuff and for my current role. But, but that was pretty much the quickest we could have done it. Um, so he left in August and then I got there at right after Thanksgiving. So it was, it was pretty quick from a government standpoint. I love that from the government standpoint. Yeah. No, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's a big change. So you transferred to the reserves. Did you keep working um, as a civilian or what did you do once you got to Virginia? I had a major identity crisis for a couple of years that I didn't really know was coming. And it like took me a while to realize I was in it. So that was interesting. (laughs) But yeah, I started, I joined a reserve unit at the Pentagon, which he was in Quantico and we lived up just like in Northern Virginia, um, just outside of DC. So I spent my reserve time at the Pentagon there and I had a great unit and a great job. And I was really, really thankful for that. So that kind of helped me bridge the gap, I guess, just in my mind as like, as I'm trying to figure out like who I am and what I'm doing in the world now. Took a civilian job as a defense contractor because I did what every good JO does who gets out of the military and moves to the DC area. And I went to be a defense contractor at the Pentagon. And I did that job for less than a year and it was great and it was not for me. And I realized that pretty quickly. And so I left that when I found out that I was pregnant with my first child, which we had planned on me working up until like she was born and just like kind of like not coming back from maternity leave, but that didn't happen. I was also getting my MBA and I was a reservist. So I just had like a bunch of stuff going on and I was miserable in my job. And my husband was finally like, Hey, like this is not a long-term thing for you anyway. Cause like we're about to have a kid and like, we're going to move again. Like, why don't we just not do this now? And I was like, that's a great idea. So and then from there, I became a stay-at-home mom. I was still a reservist. I was still drilling. Um, I did a lot of watch standing. So it was like not I was able to kind of create my own schedule a little bit more, which was really helpful. But my husband traveled all the time in that job. And it was all it was all very short notice. It was like 24, 48 hours out. Like I couldn't trust his schedule. Everything changed a lot. So after I had my daughter, it became more challenging, especially because I was standing watch a lot. I was on the watch floor. It was atypical hours, right? I would do like evening watches or sometimes I would do mid watches. And if he wasn't home, then what am I going to do with my my baby. So that became more challenging. And yeah, so through all that, I got my real estate license because we're real estate investors. We own a couple of um, rental properties kind of scattered throughout the country. And so that was helpful from, you know, just managing all of that. And I did a couple of um, transactions with people I knew and, you know, old friends from the service and, not, and whatnot, but that was also not like a highly transferable career path, right? Like every time we move. So that I realized pretty quickly that's, it was great for while we were there, but not like a long-term plan. And yeah, I started a financial blog. Like I just started talking about like money stuff because that's something I really enjoyed. And so I was just like throughout this whole, like there's a lot of like meandering and a lot of kind of what am I going to do with my life? Like I love my kids, but what else am I going to do with my life kind of thing? And so through all of that, I learned what life coaching was, which I was very skeptical of at first. And then I learned more about it and trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And like amidst this whole like identity crisis, I hired a coach who helped me a lot. And then that's ultimately how I wound up where I am now, which now I'm a life and leadership coach. And I work primarily with uh, military leadership trying to solve the 
broken bits of our culture because there's a lot of really great things that we do and there's a lot of stuff that's like not so great. So it's a very like long and meandering road. And on that path, I've had two more kids. So I've got three kids now and we left Virginia and we did a quick 18 month tour in California. And now we're back in the greater DC area in Maryland. Yeah, I can really relate to the identity crisis and the like lack of being aware that it was coming because I feel like you're transitioning and they're like, oh, you need to get a job. You need to get a job. And you're like, okay, I'll get a job. And like, I wasn't planning on getting a job. So I felt really awkward. But then I left and like a whole part of me was gone and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And like, like you said, it took a few years to figure out like I was having an identity crisis and my blog is like a meandering road. So like, I really relate to that. And, and I'm also a military spouse. So I understand like the challenges there. So I feel like your story really resonates a lot with my story. And so, and I know a lot of veterans, even if you're not a military spouse, they all, we face this identity crisis that we don't really see coming where we're like, I thought I was ready. Right. It's like, you do all the things, you check all the boxes. You're like, I'm ready to get out. And then you're out and you're like, oh, dear Lord, what do I do now? And because like the military is so much more than a job, right? Like it bleeds over into every corner of your life, whether you want it to or not. So even if you're super ready to get out and you're like fed up or even if you leave on a really good note, but like it's your choice and you're very ready to go, there's a huge void that's left there. And I don't think we really think about it that way. And not not that that's a bad thing, but there's just like in a whole way that you even just getting dressed, like when I had to start like dressing myself every morning, like especially in like DC, you know, like fancy business, like black pants and heels culture. I'm like, I literally started wearing combat boots when I was 17. Like I don't do heels. I don't know how to walk in heels. I don't know how to dress myself. I don't know what like business appropriate is. Like in my brain, I was like, I can do the same work whether I'm in uncomfortable pants or my jeans. So even that piece was, that's a whole learning curve in itself. And like, who are you and what do you do? And like our society is so like when you meet somebody, it's like, oh, like, what do you do? It's like, we treat our jobs as more about like who we are. You know what I mean? Like it's such a, that's just kind of like how we all think about it and how we talk about it. So when all of a sudden you're in this transition you're like, this was such a huge piece of who I was and what I did and how I showed up in the world. And now I don't have it. And that first move was interesting because that was the first time that I had moved and not been immediately plugged into like a social network, right? Like we moved for my husband's job, not for mine. And so I didn't, and in the DC area in general is just so big and scattered anyway. And so that was also really challenging because I was like, who do I talk to? What do I do? Where do I go? Right. And that was a whole new thing that I had never really had to figure out before. Cause you, when you move on your, into your own unit, even if they're not your best friends in the whole world, like you have people to talk to, you know? Yeah. That's something that I, I've written about years ago because that was something that I noticed when I, I moved and I was like, I'm at home. I have a one year old and I don't know anyone in this town. And I'm like, all disconnected and how I said that like the military gives you like instant friends because you like show up to a unit and like so you don't have to be their best friend but at least you have someone to talk to or hang out with at lunch or talk about the weather (laughs) instead of like being at home and you're like I don't know what to do with myself. So yeah, I really relate to that. Yeah. And then you throw like new mom on top of it. And like, that's a whole nother ball of wax. It's like, you're trying to figure out how to keep this kid alive. You don't really have like that social network and that kind of safety net, if you will, that you're used to having. So you're trying to figure out so many things at once. And just, I felt like my brain was melting. Yeah. I feel like we could have like an hour long conversation just on that because yeah, I I totally relate to that. Maybe it's something we need to talk about in the future. So 
Is there anything else from your time in the military or the work that you're doing today that you wanted to cover that we didn't talk about? Oh, man. That's another thing. I feel like I could just talk about stuff for like hours and hours. Not really specifically, I don't think. It's just, it's been interesting to kind of look back and especially now as like a leadership coach and kind of zoning in on like these specific issues. I'm very, like very intentionally and very specifically like looking at how there's a lot of really good leadership in the military, but there's a lot of really bad leadership too. And I was having a conversation with a friend from my second ship who she's still in, she's a department head now a couple of months ago. And she was like, you know, when, when you're, especially as an officer, but even like pretty, pretty quickly into your enlisted career, like you become in, you have some sort of leadership role, like even as a fairly junior enlisted, you know, soldier or sailor or whatever. I was like, this is like a, a leadership like factory. It's like a leadership environment in so many different ways on all the different levels. And there's not, there is some formal leadership training, but not a lot of it. And, you know, it's like you go like through your commissioning sources as an officer or like, you know, go to, I know there's like senior enlisted leadership school, like there's all kinds of different training schools and everything that was like sprinkled out throughout your career, depending on what your path is. And I feel like we as a DOD, like make an effort to train good leaders, but I don't, I feel like there's not as much of an emphasis put on like actual good at leadership and like how to teach people how to relate to others and like build genuine relationships as much as there should be. And that's a big part of the work that I'm trying to do now is just to kind of figure out how to help fill that gap. Because if you're, it's, you know, it's like retention versus results, right? It's like, we need to hold on to our people to be able to achieve the mission. We can't achieve the mission without the people. And if the people don't give in, you know, if they don't care if they're not in it or if they're just so burnt out that they can't function, we're definitely not going to achieve the mission. So it's like this balancing act. But in my opinion, and what I've seen, you know, over the last 15 years, I feel like we need to put a greater emphasis on the human aspect of just the military in general and the lifestyle. And we're so good at doing preventative maintenance on all of our equipment, like across all of the services. And I feel like just recently, are we starting to actually talk about preventative maintenance on our people and on our brains because they are ultimately our most valuable asset. They're also the most expensive too. So I could talk about this for, you know, six more weeks straight, but I think that's, I feel like the quote unquote tide is turning a little bit. I think we still have a really long way to go, but even just like the conversations, the initiatives that I'm seeing make me hopeful. But I just, I do find it very interesting that we are in such a leadership centric industry, if you will. And we don't put the emphasis on it in the training that in my humble opinion, I think that we should. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between like being a good leader and like checking all the boxes and so that you can get promoted and like being a good leader in the sense of like you're taking care of your people. My husband just moved to a new job and the lieutenant colonel is like, one of your main priorities is mentoring the lieutenants and captains. And so he's been meeting with them and he's been spending like like one time he spent almost two hours talking to a lieutenant about, and my husband's an introvert and he doesn't talk. And so when I told someone that my husband talked to someone for two hours, they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, but like <laughs> they, he's like telling them about like, you know, cause they want to get their masters and they're focused on AFID. He's like, you know, you can go to the Naval Post Graduate School because they have the degree that you want. And, and they're like, I didn't know that. And like the fact that like he has all this knowledge where they're just telling him like what they want for the future. And he's like, oh, if you do this and you do that. And like he's just giving them the push, like go check out the Naval Postgraduate. Go look at the Army School and see if it has what you want. And like 
they never would have thought they were like so focused on AFIT and they were like, I can't go to AFIT because I'm not an engineer. I want to do business. And so it's really interesting, like the knowledge that we have as like people who have served in the military and how these brand new lieutenants and airmen, I'm doing Air Force, but you know, they, they, the brand new people joining the military, they don't know this because they don't have the years of experience. And if you can just take like an hour out of your day, which it's hard because the military doesn't have enough people to do all the work. So it's a lot to ask to do mentorship. And so I I think it's like something I'm really passionate about is like how we can build mentorship programs and how we can connect people. Um, because I think that's like one of the pieces of leadership that the military is missing because we don't have enough time. And it's not really a a bullet point like I mentored six airmen and it changed their lives like it's like I did the mission and so I think until the military shifts their focus and like makes it more of a priority then that's how it's going to be because people want to get promoted and that's what's important to them I completely agree I completely agree. And like exactly to your point one, I think that's amazing that your husband is taking that time and that his boss is putting the emphasis on that for him too. So it's like giving him the space to go do that. Like that's amazing. Cause you're right. Like we don't know what we don't know. Right. It's like these, these young kids didn't even know like to go ask that question because they didn't even know it was in the realm of possibility. So just like offering that being like, Oh, Oh my God, I didn't even think to look over here on this corner. I had no idea that was even there. So that's awesome. And I completely agree with everything you said about how we, it's like not a bullet point and it's not something that we, you know, it's not like the box to be checked and we don't really have the time because we have to do all these other things. And that's definitely the, like, was my experience in, and it's still what I'm seeing now, like, as I kind of like working from like the, you know, quote unquote outside, but as a leader, like that is our primary job, right? Is the development and the mentorship and all of that of our people. Like that is number one. And then everything else needs to just be like on an as available basis or like, that's like all the, you know, strategic byproducts. Because if you take care of your people, then everything else falls into place. And so I, I agree with you 100%. I think we have it backwards as like an overall approach and an overall culture. And that's what I'm trying to change. And I was like, it's probably going to take me five decades, but I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm really passionate about that too. I really have loved getting to learn more about your time in the Navy and what you're doing today. And so I like to end interviews with what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? Do it. Always. I think the military service in general is, it's not perfect. There's a whole lot of stuff that's messed up about it. And I think that's true of pretty much anywhere you will go, right? Like there's no one silver bullet that's got it perfectly right. I think it just, I mean, kind of what we were talking about in the beginning where it's just, it kind of forces you to grow up a little bit, not in like a bad way that you couldn't do somewhere else, but it forces you to really take ownership of yourself and it gives it opens so many possibilities and opportunities that i think are unique to this environment and you don't have to stay for 20 right you can do one enlistment or you can do 5 years and get out um but i think the benefits far outweigh the quote unquote downside like the people you work with and what you it's there's the, they're the best people right and just being a part of a dedicated team who's you know dedicated to being something to the mission that's so much bigger than yourself as an individual, I think that's just a perspective that you don't get everywhere, right? And I think it, I feel like as Americans, just in general, like our culture is very individualistic and not that that's wrong or bad, but when you come together as 
as part of something just truly bigger than yourself for the for the greater good, I just think it's really powerful. And I think you get a different perspective on life that you don't get really anywhere else. So if you're considering it, I think you should do it. I think that's great advice. I just wrote an article for Military Families Magazine about how recruiters I've seen blaming veterans. And I think that the real problem, which I'm like, oh, I need to write another article, is that they're not changing like exactly what you said. Like they're talking about like bonuses and trying to put people in jobs that aren't for them. But you need to talk about like how it benefits you for the rest of your life and make that case so that people will want to join and not try and like pull the wool. You can't pull the wool over their eyes anymore. You have to be honest and tell those stories. That comes down to like basic human desire and like basic like human motivation right like there's so much science that supports that like you know just throwing more money at the problem it does not increase motivation like in certain situations it does for sure but past like a fairly low threshold like that stops working and yet we keep doing that like as a military and just like as a society like corporate all the time i'm like i'm like we this isn't new anymore right like we know that this is not it doesn't make sense like it fundamentally doesn't work why do we keep anyway that's a conversation for another day Thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad we got to do this interview. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really great. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.